Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. This is Wade here in the studio with Mike, and we are going to be recording today a few uh, podcast sessions on the English Reformation. Um, This is for Theology 442, History of the Reformations, and we're going to be talking about Eamon Duffy's book, The Stripping of the Altars, Traditional Religion in England, 1400 to 1580, and uh, we're not using this, this whole book in class but we're especially picking up in the, the second half of the book, which talks about the Henrician, Edwardian, Marian, and Elizabethan Reformations in England. Um, Mike, I thank you for uh, being willing to kind of come along here and at least give me someone to, to have a little back and forth with as we go. But uh, these are this is the first one we're doing for Theology 442. I've done all videos so far. So I will just say to those in Theology 442, what Dr. Berg and I have been doing um, is we each kind of take the lead if it's our own class. So you're still going to be, be hearing mostly me, um, but I will appreciate when Mike is able to jump in if he has thoughts or I can bounce stuff off him as well. So what we're going to be taking in this first uh, podcast session is the first two chapters of what you have been assigned, which was chapter uh, chapters 11 and 12. So chapter 11 is the attack on... Traditional Religion 1, um, from the break with Rome to the Act of Six Articles, and then it'll, the next chapter, uh, understandably, its name will be the Attack on Traditional Religion 2. But uh, what these these chapters eventually basically do are going to be um, to look at developments under Henry, under Edward, under Mary, and under Elizabeth, and these are what we call the Tudors, T-U-D-O-R, um, the Tudor dynasty uh, in in England, um, which will end with Elizabeth uh, and began before Henry VIII. <clears throat> but uh, different houses have uh, held the monarchy uh, throughout time. What is it now? I think the House of Windsor mm-hmm. is that the current mm-hmm. Queen. And and so um, this this Tudor family will be an important family and. Uh, the, the the three that follow Henry VIII will be three of his surviving children. Uh, Edward, the, the, the male heir he so long had wanted to have. Why I think Eamon Duffy's book is helpful as a good one to use in class is because when it comes to English history and the English Reformation, uh, we get to see a little bit of how the historical field is not a stagnant thing, um, but that it's much like research in any other discipline. Uh, There are views of the English Reformation that have been put out there, traditional narratives. And then there are uh, what's called revisionist historians. And this is not revisionist history, like when someone is derided as a revisionist, meaning they're like into conspiracy theories or they're denying things that we know for sure happen. This is not revisionist, like like Holocaust revisionism. Um, But it is revisionist, meaning it's revising the traditional narrative that had been um, put forward uh, um, regarding the the English Reformation. And so maybe if we first just hit on that, um, and the person who usually uh, comes to mind when that comes up will be uh, Dickens, um, which is a book we sometimes use in this class um, regarding the English Reformation. And this traditional narrative that, that Dickens and then that others put forward. Basically, uh, A.G. Dickens argues 
that the English Reformation was something for which the English public was ripe um, and that was welcomed by them. That traditional Catholicism in England had sort of a um, run its it had run its course. Um, it uh, it it was uh, the life in it had been basically sapped. There, it was just waiting to be pushed over or um, or or reformed from within. Uh, that it uh, was was. What Henry VIII does and then what Edward will do, these, uh, these reformations will basically be welcomed from the bottom up. Uh, what revisionist history will argue is that th things weren't necessarily nearly as cut and dry as we think or have thought that it is not as if the, the church was out of life and um, that it actually was perhaps in some ways quite vibrant. Um, there will be arguments that the uh, um, there was there was no inevitable reformation that it might not have happened at all had it not been for Henry VIII and his divorce, um, and and so Duffy is a significant contributor to that. And I won't go through all the names of everyone who has questioned uh, Dickens' uh, view, but I will say it oftentimes does break down along confessional lines, too. Um, those who uh, have a Protestant background will tend to uh, be inclined towards Dickens' view um, that, the, that the, the Catholic Church in England had, had become, you know, uh, decayed to the point that Reformation was, was welcomed and necessary. Uh, those with Roman Catholic backgrounds or sympathies will often then be inclined to, to question that. And so the first half of the Duffy book is very good. If you, if you ever want to get a sense for what medieval Catholicism looked like and felt like um, and what a parish church would have looked like if you walked in and what its parish life would have been like, this uh, is a phenomenal book. Now, whether or not you buy his thesis, uh, and, and there is more than one thesis in this book, and you kind of get a sense with each part there's a different thesis, um, but whether or not you buy all of his arguments or his, his core thesis, which is basically that um, traditional Catholicism in England was rather vibrant at the time when the English Reformation came, uh, the the information he gives and a lot he he loves to illustrate um, his arguments with uh, with local situations. He gives stories of local parishes. I think is is rather fascinating um, for students. You know, if you're having a hard time reading this. Um, my biggest advice would be to to make sure you latch on to the to the argument paragraphs, and then you know the the illustration paragraphs are are helpful for driving that point home. But the main thing is to get the get the sense: is this a, par a paragraph that's arguing big picture, or is this a, a local paragraph? But chapter eleven then is going to pick up with the the situation with uh, with Henry, and maybe Mike, I can just ask you real quick. So uh, English Reformation is is I think it's fair to say is definitely not your your main field, mm -hmm. uh, but um, I think any of us in America know a little bit about the English Reformation because we know about Henry VIII because the Tudors are just so darn film worthy <laughs> um, that HBO likes to make specials. There's uh, PBS likes to do documentaries. Um, we're all somewhat familiar with with Henry VIII. Um, Mike, you have done a lot with Luther. And so you're familiar, surely, with Henry VIII in regards to, to Luther. 
Um, not the best friends. Uh, not many people can say they've, uh, you know, kind of told off a king, but mm-hmm. but Luther could say he had. But what what would um, maybe even just apart from reading this, your your general impression of uh, of Henry the Eighth and the, of the English English Reformation, or what do you think mo- would come to most people's minds when they're thinking of it? Well, I think what comes to my mind right away is just how often. Uh, bars come up in the English Reformation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like every other page, you're like, oh, but in the ale houses, right? Which is kind of fascinating. Yeah. And does talk to your, you know, your point about was this a top down or was it a uh, bottom up Reformation? Well, of course, it, w- it was both in, in certain circumstances. And <clears throat> it, it really is a fascinating uh, uh, situation because. And we, we talked about this before, like different reform, like there's a reformation going on in the Roman Catholic Church through this period. And then much more we talked about as a counter reformation afterwards. But it's not like Luther was the only one who was trying to reform things. And from a Roman Catholic, let's say, uh, within the clergy, there was an impulse to clean things up. But politics would often get in the way, and it depends on who's the pope and how that pope came to power. From the from the royalty, Catholic royalty, and I'm talking broad picture here, not just before Luther, during Luther, and after Luther. Often saw, saw it as a more more a moral problem, and so let's fix the morality within the church and within the community. That inevitably is going to lead to more rules and laws. Right, but for Luther and then some of his predecessors, um, proto Luthers, if you want, like uh, Wycliffe, uh, J- John Huss, and stuff like that, they understood that it was a theological problem, right? But for Henry, it is at first a it's first a political issue, right? I mean, so you have to understand that he is not that much concerned with theology, although. I think he is, and he's actually pretty well read in theology and can converse with somebody. This is kind of fascinating, like Henry VIII, all this big. The Duke can converse in theology, and the, the, the Queen of England right now is not going to be able to converse in theology with a, with a Luther scholar, right? But Henry could, right? And so he is in tune with these things, but he keeps getting pulled back into this political power kind of uh, way of looking at it, right? And he's got a job to keep things in line, but he also has his his political uh, uh, impulses there. And so I think that's probably one of the reasons why he and Luther do not get along. But then you have in the bars, you have literally in the bars, right? People talking about these things. And so it's kind of fascinating. It's like uh, you just think of like, I don't know, 1848 Europe, Right. You know, except they're talking theology rather than, (laughs) you know, rebellion. And so uh, it's just I mean, it's one of those counterfactual things like uh, like what would have happened if English went not just the Church of England, but went Lutheran? Mm -hmm. That changes politics forever. Does the British Empire does do the British like ease up on their empire building? (laughs) Right. Right. how do I, you know, could Lutheranism been less, um, uh, would have been a, a dash of calming down and not such a, 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 a Catholic versus Protestant kind of thing? Would, would there have been a check on some of the more 
pietistic movements, uh, you know, eventually moving into puritism later on. I mean, we just can't, we just don't know, right? I mean, it just, it, it's kind of a fascinating thing to think about. So my first glance is to say, this is a political reformation, but it is also a theological reformation, where in Germany it was a theological reformation, for the most part, obviously politics played a part, where Catholic reformations tended to be a little bit more politically driven and moralistically driven, if that makes any sense. Yeah, and I think uh, something that's, man, these, these wires, I now hear myself really well, but not your, you, you as much, Mike, but hopefully this is recording okay. Um, but I, I think a, a big part you hit on there was that this is, this is not a, a theological reformation as we think with the others. So in class, we've looked at Luther, we've looked at Zwingli, we've looked at Kelvin. Each of those reformations had political components in a sense, but they were theologically driven, right? This is a, um, th- these were, uh, theo- and, and Calvin him- himself didn't always call himself a theologian, but he clearly was. These were theologian-driven. Um, Henry's is, is basically about not getting this annulment from the, uh, the Pope, and uh, I talk about that a little bit in the, in the, the video uh, addressing the, the overview of the English Reformation. And so uh, what people are going to experience under the Tudors, you just have to imagine being the average English person um, under the Tudors. One second, you're, you're Roman Catholic. And Duffy would argue you have a pretty good church life. The next, you're still kind of Roman Catholic, but the king is the head of the church. Then you have more availability of, 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 of the Bible, the scriptures, more reading of the scriptures. Then you have Henry saying, okay, we're going to pull back on that and kind of this um, move towards more traditionalism again. Then you have Henry's death and basically Zwinglian influences coming in under Edward. Then you have Edward's death. You, right, he lives, what, from age eight, 9 to 15. And you have Mary wanting to restore Roman Catholicism. Her reign lasts five years. And then you're going to have Elizabeth with big tent. Uh just imagine the, imagine being clergy under that. Imagine being the lay people. And the book, as it gets later into, will get to, well, how do you write your will? Like, what can you leave to who? And what's going to get your uh, the people who are taking care of your account in trouble? Um, and so I think a big takeaway from the, these early chapters is going to be especially the fact that what mattered most to Henry and then to Henry's advisors um, at this time is going to be the obedience of the people, not necessarily every religious or theological issue. And so that's why Henry's able to be somewhat uh, fluid in how things develop in the doctrinal statements and the practices that are, are put out. Um, and then it becomes a balancing act as well of what can you, how far can you go religiously without losing political obedience, without stirring up disobedience. Because as Mike mentioned, uh, there are people talking in the alehouses. And there's going to be acts of disobedience during this this time as well. And so it's a real balancing act to try to hold power. Um, But you're also going to have people who are advisors who play extremely important roles. And we recognize this even in America with the president. There's a reason that uh, now, correct me if I'm messing this up now, right? Cat, all the cabinet members get approved by 
by Congress, don't they? Um, are there any ones that are not? Yeah, not the staff, but the but the cabinet. Members, the cabinet yeah. positions, yeah. And uh, someone might look at that and say, "Well, why the president should just get to straight up pick?" And would say, "These advisor positions are so important um, that they can become their own little fiefdom." And Cromwell is the figure, Thomas Cromwell, who will be extremely important in this phase of the Henrician Reformation. And he will be, uh, Mike, you brought up the, you know, a good point about what if England had gone Lutheran. Cromwell's sympathies are probably with Lutheranism. There's a wonderful, by the way, historical fiction novel, um, what is it, Wolf Hall, Wolf I believe, Hall, yeah. um, that's on, on Cromwell. Uh, but uh, he, he is going to lean Lutheran. You're going to have other early uh, English reformers who lean Lutheran. Cranmer at first is going to lean Lutheran. He's married to um, the niece of Andreas Osiander, who's a, a Lutheran reformer in Nuremberg. Um, Robert Barnes is going to have spent time in, in, in Germany and in Wittenberg. Tyndale, um, who's important for Bible translation. And an excellent article on this, if students are, anybody's writing on the English Reformation, is The Strange Death of Lutheran England by Alec Reary, um, Journal of Ecclesiastical History, January of 2002. Reary's refined his thesis somewhat, but it's really fantastic. Um, but if we look at the early statements that come out of Henry's uh, Reformation, if we want to speak of it that way, they're not going to be all that Protestant, right? If we think of the Act of the Six Articles, uh the six articles that are covered, A, it's only six. A big reform is going to deal with more. Uh, but it's pretty traditional, and it deals with the Lord's Supper. Um, the priest shouldn't marry still. Uh, that, uh, um, that there can be private masses still. That there should be auricular confession. This is, this is not a, a strong reforming uh, statement. And then even the ten articles... And and by the way, this Act of Six Articles is what it's called the this the what the the whip of six strings, and uh, because Henry will want to enforce it because conformity is going to be the big word for the Henrician Reformation. Um, conformity is what is ex- expected. But even if you look at the Ten Articles of fifteen thirty six, um, you can see there's five articles related to doctrines, five related to ceremonies. <coughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. And even they um, are not going to be anything radical by any means. Uh, they will talk about justification as the remission of sins, um, but emphasize that good works are necessary. Uh, they talk about the the body and blood being present elements in the in the Eucharist. Um, that confession in, involves contrition, confession, and reformation, and is necessary for salvation. Uh, baptism for the remission of sins, the three creeds, but then that uh, images are useful. Saints are to be honored, although here a little Protestant, as honored as examples of life, um, but secondly, more traditional, as furthering our prayers. The saints may be invoked as intercessors. Ceremonies are to be observed for the sake of good order. Um, and then prayers for the dead are good and useful. This is not what we might call um, you know, very Protestantizing in focus, one thing, though, that that that, um, that Henry's advisors will go to work on, and especially Cranmer will go to work on, and, and here, Mike, is where I thought um, you might have uh, some input, 
and not necessarily even maybe uh, don't feel that you got to you know cite anything specific historically here, but big debates um, or a lot of focus is placed on things like primers or church architecture, right? What's happening within the buildings? What is being moved? What is being emphasized? Um, prayer books, right? The development of this. Why? Um, and discontent amongst the, 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 the public usually relates to that more than doctrine. Mm-hmm. Right? Why the importance of... Um, of practice, do you think, and and what, especially if they're trying to have conformity, um, why do, why would why would what we when we think of, think of primary what we might call hymnals, yeah. right? This, why do these things become so important? Well, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is uh, the, the average layman, even maybe the more well-read layman, if there is such a thing at the, at this time, um, is is not really going to be concerned or be able to debate some of the finer points of theology, but they sure know if, if you change something in the, in the, in the service. And we understand that the, the, the ancient phrase, lux orandi, lux credendi, that the law of prayer is the law of faith. And so the way that works is what you do in prayer, think worship here, not just prayer, what you do on the Sunday morning service, is going to be a reflection of what you believe, generally speaking. And vice versa. What you are doing on Sunday morning is going to affect the people in the pews and what they believe, right? They hear it over and over and over again. Um, and this is the faith that, that uh, they've heard and they are going to believe it. And, and so it's a, it's a dynamic relationship between those two things. And by the way, just to fast forward, uh, the Anglican Church is probably understood this better than any other denomination in the sense that this is one of the things that unites them. Uh, it, for Lutherans, we, we don't like that idea of that the worship service would unite us. Uh, Roman Catholics are going to come. That is going to be something that unites them. They understand that as well. But usually it's going to be very prescribed, right? That uh, you have to do this and you don't do this. It becomes very kind of legalistic and very and so the, the Anglicans, what they understood is if we can have a liturgy, a Sunday morning worship service that is maybe at points vague enough, <laughs> right, that uh, maybe disagreement, disagreeing people can still say these words out loud without crossing their fingers behind their backs, that would be great. And so still today, you don't really, you have your 39 articles which are a confession of the Anglican Church. And remember, when we think about Anglican Church, we're talking the Church of England in America, pretty much post-revelation, uh, revelation, post-revolution, we're going to be called Episcopalians in America, right? I mean, you're, there's a part, part of this is a d- detached from the old European way of things. You'd, in the revolution, you don't want to put on your church sign, we're the Church of England, right? right? You know, so <laughs> Episcopalian is actually how they... Uh, govern themselves by <laughs> bishops rather than you may think of congregationalists where the congregation is autonomous or presbyters where the elders were, 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 the, were the, basically the polity of the church. So today you have the, the Book of Common Prayer, you have worship, and then this 
10-year conference called the Lambeth Conference that basically sort of governs the church. And you still have the 39 articles and there's debates on, you know, how, how each person is going, each congregation is going to, to adhere to them. Um, so the understanding that the worship service is a very powerful thing to keep people in line. So if you're, if you're Henry or any other uh, royalty, that is something culturally that you can sort of kind of play with, right? You can maybe even mandate things. You can maybe say this is acceptable and this is not acceptable kind of thing. And that is going to keep things in line in your, keep things in line in your, your kingdom. And if, if there's any way that you can do that culturally, that's a big deal. So a king can say, uh, I'm going to tax you. A king can say, here is, I, I'm going to give the barons or I'm going to give the dukes or I'm going to give the nobility something, you know, tax breaks or whatever, but they owe me something. That's all politics. That's all economic. That's all legal. But if you can get into the culture, that is a big deal. And I think uh, Henry understood this as well. So the primers, again, you're going to think of like either prayer, personal prayer books, but we could probably include uh, with that what we know today as hymnals. Those kinds of things are going to be important and they're going to, uh, there's going to be wrangling over what is said and what is not said. And, um, and this has a long history in the Christian church, of course. Uh, many Germans are, uh, are many people that are in America with ger a Germanic background, uh, some of them anyway, came over after the Prussian Union, where through the liturgy of the mandated by the government, this is what you're going to say when we do the words of institution about Holy Communion. Um, they made it vague enough so that they thought both Lutherans and Reformed could go to the same church, say the same things, participate in the same things without, and both feeling comfortable. They could do it without their fingers crossed behind their backs. Well, that backfired, right? And, uh, and this was uh, the impetus for uh, many Germans to come over to America and be thoroughly Lutheran, although they also came over because the, you know, economic reasons, of course, too. But um, <clears throat> there, was, there was a push for that. So what do you do with prayers to the saints, right? Do you take them out and then just say, well, it's okay if you have your own personal piety. Can we get along with that? What do you say with Holy Communion? Um, is it Christ's body and blood? Or did, or can you say Jesus said it's Christ's body and blood? And so there's going to be wrangling over every word, and rightfully so. But the motivation, of course, from the royalty um, is going to try to keep unity. From those who are concerned with doctrine, they're going to fight for the application of their doctrine um, being said clearly and precisely without, uh, uh, without going one side or the other within the church service. So, um, you know, and, and there's going to be a lot of, uh, from the continent, there's going to be a lot of influence. Obviously, the, the Book of Common Prayer, what we mean by that is kind of the standard English common service that uh, most people are familiar with, even if they're not familiar with, uh, if they have gone to church. Um, is going to have influence from Lutherans, but it's all, it's going to be a Catholic in a small C kind of thing too, right? Strip down what you think is not acceptable, 
keep what you what you can. I don't know. It's kind of rambling, but I, I hope. No, that I helpful. think it's helpful because there's going to be a lot of these things that will, will come up, and, and we'll think of the first and second book of prayer, uh, and the the second book of prayer kind of becoming a, a big step towards the book of common prayer under Elizabeth. Uh, you're exactly right, Mike, and this is something I want students to grasp: is these become what happens, the what takes place in the liturgy, what the church building looks like, who we're praying to, when we're praying, are going to be the defining features of um, kind of either con- conformity and unity or division. Right? This is where you're really going to, and this is where Duffy is is helpful. This is where you're really going to see the best evidence you can find of people towing the line or not towing the line. Um, and so it will be very important. Just a couple things maybe, and then we'll, we'll wrap up our discussion of, of chapter 11 and 12. <clears throat> uh, an important thing to keep in mind in the Duffy book uh, is on page 422, where he talks about Henry's reaction against Bible reading. The Bible had been made more accessible and People start reading it and discussing it. And yes, often even, as Dr. Berg has pointed out, in the alehouses. And Henry is going to see this being something that has exacerbated division, not um, fostered unity. He sees name-calling coming out of it. You know, you, people are using pejoratives for each other based on their uh, their positions in doctrine or practice. Um, and so Henry kind of wants to tone that down. And he's going to say, okay, if people want to read the Bible on their own is one thing. But as far as public discussion of it, this shouldn't be taking place, you know, at the White Horse Inn, which is kind of a famous, you know, bar eventually that gets used. Um, this should be, uh, only experts should be carrying out public discourse on it. This is going to be, Reary argues, one of the breaking points for the Lutheran influences in the English Reformation is that they had been willing to be patient. They had been willing to focus on slowly revising practice with an eye towards doctrine, but that two of their really um, main things they had wanted was the freedom to preach justification by grace through faith, um, but then the big one was open access to the Bible, to the scriptures. And as Henry kind of pulls that back, then this is where you're going to have increased uh, frustration from the what we might call evangelicals in England at this time. Not like American evangelicals, not a largely right-leaning voting block, um, but these are Protestant-y people, um, although that it's anachronistic to use some of these terms for, for various people. Uh, but this pulling back on the, um, the scriptures being available, and then Cromwell's fall will be important. And it, it appears, I, you know, from a lot of what I've read, I really do think Henry later regretted um, what he did with Cromwell, but I also think Cromwell got too um, far out ahead of Henry, I think, and was running a little bit probably too much. Um, but this fall of Cromwell will be important because Cromwell was an amazing guy. Uh, he was a, a very energetic guy, very um, politically gifted. And this will leave things to fall largely on the shoulders of, of Cranmer when it comes to reform. And Cramer's brilliance, really, was in uh, liturgical language. It was in the reform of, of practice. And this isn't because Cramer was um, Thomas Cramer, it was the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's not because he was unconcerned with doctrine, 
but he kind of saw the route as being slow changes in practice that will lead to the to the doctrinal convictions that as a convinced Protestant he had, he wanted to see happen. Two things, though, will be happening with Cranmer over time. He's going to move from being more Lutheran influence to being more Swiss Reformation influence. That's going to show itself more under Edward, um, but we're not sure exactly you know, when that begins to happen. And then uh, secondly uh, will be he... Uh, under under Edward, he is going to be set free to be more open in his convictions. Um, but he really takes a... I, I, I wouldn't say that it's uh, the position I would likely hold. It maybe isn't the most forthright. But he's kind of right in his view um, for his approach to, to deal with practice first. And I think that Duffy just has a great line as, as he closes out this chapter. Uh, and this is on page 447. Duffy says, the primer, published with all the panoply of royal approval and with every sign of the direct involvement of the king himself, was a portent of things to come. Under the exuberance of traditional rejoicing over the victory, the found, uh, over victory, the found sh foundations were slowly but decisively shifting. What this means is, at the end of uh, Henry's life, as he kind of seems to pull back to a more traditional view of Christianity, and a less reforming view, and so the radicals, are, the evangelical radicals, as Duffy calls them, are somewhat isolated. And I think even Duffy's use of that term, radical, shows his kind of confessional background there, may possibly, but or his sympathies. But um, but what he means is, but the foundations had already been broken. A lot of um, a ceremony-heavy um, church culture has to have strong foundations that those ceremonies are more than just things you do, but they have to be catechetical. They have to inform one's view of life and philosophy of life. They have to imbue the 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 year um, with meaning and, and give the seasons purposes. And because they had been changed so much under Henry, um, and because they're catechetical roots had kind of been cut um, and because the church calendar had been revised and um, you had this emphasis on conformity which sometimes squelched local practices which often had a great power um, the foundations were very much weakened and I think that uh, this partly explains why, why Mary um, will not be able to have a, a lasting restoration of Catholicism in England with Henry's uh, Henry's death. Uh, Mike, what do we have for time there? 34, 35. Okay, that's not bad. Um, the uh, As you're listening to this, so Theology 442 students, um, you're going to have your notes. Once again, as we're done with the videos, make clear what's notes on your readings, what's notes on, in this case, the podcast sessions. Hopefully this recorded all right. Our lines were a little off, but whatever you did, Mike, you fixed them for the second half here. Um, I apologize. Uh, we had a very dutiful worker. God bless him, who was vacuuming right outside the office. So I went out and kind of let him know we were recording. So you might have picked up that conversation, and that's what was uh, what was happening. Um, but under Henry, think um, this was a politically and personally motivated reformation at its beginnings. Um, before this, as Dr. Berg pointed out, Henry's actually written against Luther. Um, Henry is 
Now he's writing likely perhaps through AIDS. Sir Thomas More probably helps. But um, he is theologically astute, right? He is interested in these things. He has no intention of breaking with Rome until the issue comes up of not being able to have a male heir and then not having the annulment granted. Um, and then the, the, the general tone of it is one that is seeking to strive balance between um, reform of practice with avoiding um, fostering disobedience. And that uh, while somewhat early on to the middle, there are some openings for more Protestant reform, uh, Henry is going to pull back towards the end of his life, and, and we're not going to see a Lutheran or Reformed England in any meaningful way, uh, much to the chagrin of Reformers. But you're going to have the ongoing efforts of a man like Thomas Cranmer, um, who, through the revision of practice, is trying to chip away toward doctrinal reform and undermine the doctrinal foundations of traditional Catholicism. So with this chapter, think Cromwell, or these chapters, think Cromwell, think Cranmer is very influential people under Henry that should be kept in mind. And then as far as a name of someone who's trying to work towards more traditionalist Christianity and Catholicism even, would be Stephen Gardner is the name that comes up for, for that. We're going to make our way next time into Edward, um, and this is going to be the opening for the hardcore Protestants, for the hardcore evangelicals, whatever we want to call them. And uh, unfortunately, um, Edward and Mary are both just, uh, Elizabeth had the better strategy. Elizabeth lived a long time, and neither Edward or Mary are going to do that. Um, but we'll make our way to Edward, and what will really be a an opening for a more um, Swiss-oriented uh, kind of a platform of, uh, of, of reform. So until next time, uh, if you have any questions, shoot me an email. And otherwise, in the midst of uh, all this pandemic stuff, uh, get some rest, do your homework, uh, but most importantly, let the bird fly.